0: Chapter 23 of A Son at the Front This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Sun at the Front by Edith Wharton Chapter 23 Campton was thoroughly ashamed of what he had said to Mr. Brandt, or rather of his manner of saying it. If he could have put the same facts quietly, ironically, without forfeiting his dignity, and with the added emphasis which deliberateness and composure give, he would scarcely have regretted the opportunity. He had always secretly accused himself of a lack of courage in accepting Mr. Brant's heavy benefactions for George when the boy was too young to know what they might pledge him to. And it had been a disappointment that George, on reaching the age of discrimination, had not appeared to find the burden heavy or the obligations unpleasant. Campton, having accepted Mr. Brant's help, could hardly reproach his son for feeling grateful for it, and had therefore thought it more decent to postpone disparagement of their common benefactor till his own efforts had set them both free. Even then it would be impossible to pay off the past. But the past might have been left to bury itself now his own wrath had dug it up and he had paid for the brief joy of casting its bones in mr brant's face by a deep disgust at his own weakness all these things would have weighed on him even more if the outer weight of events had not been so much heavier he had not returned to mrs talkett's since the banker's visit he did not wish to meet jorgenstein and his talk with the banker and his visit to the clairvoyant had somehow combined to send that whole factitious world tumbling about his ears it was absurd to attach any importance to poor olida's vaticinations but the vividness of her description of the baby-faced boy dying in a german hospital haunted campton's nights if it were not the portrait of benny upshire it was at least that of hundreds and thousands of lads like him who were thus groping and agonizing and stretching out vain hands while in mrs talcott's drawing-room well-fed men and expensive women heroically forgot the war campton seeking to expiate his own brief forgetfulness by a passion of renewed activity announced to boylston the next afternoon that he was coming back to the office Boylston hardly responded. He looked up from his desk with a face so strange that Campton broke off to cry out, "'What's happened?' The young man held out a newspaper. "'They've done it! They've done it!' he shouted. Across the page the name of the Lusitania blazed out like the writing on the wall. The berserker light on Boylston's placid features transformed him into an avenging cherub. "'Ah, now we're in it!' were in it at last he exulted as if the horror of the catastrophe were already swallowed up in its result the two looked at each other without further words but the older man's first thought had been for his son now indeed america was in it the gross tangible proof for which her government had forced her to wait was there in all its unimagined horror cant and cowardice in high places had drugged and stupefied her into the strange belief that she was too proud to fight for others and here she was brutally forced to fight for herself Campton waited with a straining heart for his son's first comment on the new fact that they were in it but his excitement and boylston's exultation were short-lived before many days it became apparent that the proud nation which had flamed up overnight at the unproved outrage of the maine was lying supine under the flagrant provocation of the lusitania the days which followed were to many americans the bitterest of the war to campton they seemed the ironic justification of the phase of indifference and self-absorption through which he had just passed he could not go back to mrs talkett and her group but neither could he take up his work with even his former zeal the bitter taste of the national humiliation was perpetually on his lips he went about like a man dishonored he wondered as the days and the weeks passed at having no word from george had he refrained from writing because he too felt the national humiliation too deeply either to speak of it or to leave it unmentioned Or was he so sunk in security that he felt only a mean thankfulness that nothing was changed from such thoughts campton's soul recoiled but they lay close under the surface of his tenderness and reared their evil heads whenever they caught him alone as the summer dragged itself out he was more and more alone dastry cured of his rheumatism had left the ministry to resume his ambulance work miss anthony was submerged under the ever-mounting tide of refugees mrs brant had taken a small house at Dauville on the pretext of being near her hospital and campton heard of the talketts being with her and others of their set mr mayhew appeared at the studio one day in tennis flannels and a new straw hat announcing that he needed rest and rather sheepishly adding that mrs brant had suggested his spending a quiet fortnight with her i've got to do it if i'm to see this thing through mr mayhew added in a stern voice as if commanding himself not to waver a few days later glancing over the herald campton read that madame de dolmetsch the celebrated artiste was staying with mr and mrs anderson brant at deauville where she had gone to give recitations for the wounded in hospital campton smiled and then thought with a tightening heart of benny upshire and ladislas isidore so incredibly unlike in their lives so strangely one in their death finally not long afterward he read that the celebrated financier sir cyril jorgenstein recently knighted by the british government had bestowed a gift of a hundred thousand francs upon mrs brant's hospital it was rumored the paragraph ended that sir cyril would soon receive the legion of honor for his magnificent liberalities to france and still the flood of war rolled on success here failure there the menace of disaster elsewhere russia retreating to the Seine, italy declaring war on austria and preparing to cross the isonzo the british advance at anzac and from the near east news of the new landing at suvla through all this alternating of tragedy and triumph ran the million and million individual threads of hope fear fortitude resolve with which the fortune of the war was obscurely but fatally interwoven campton remembered his sneer at d'astry's phrase one can at least contribute an attitude he had begun to feel the force of that to understand the need of every human being's pulling his weight in the struggle had begun to scan every face in the street in the passionate effort to distinguish between the stones in the wall of resistance and the cracks through which discouragement might filter. The shabby office of the Palais Royal again became his only haven. His portrait of Mrs. Talkett had brought him many new orders, but he refused them all, and declined even to finish the pictures interrupted by the war. One of his abrupt revulsions of feeling had flung him back, heart and brain, into the horror he had tried to escape from. If thou ascend up to heaven, I am there. If thou make thy bed in hell, behold, I am there, the war said to him. And as the daily headlines shrieked out the names of new battlefields from the Arctic shore to the Pacific, he groaned back like the psalmist, Whither shall I go from thee? The people about him, miss anthony boylston mademoiselle d'avril and all their band of tired resolute workers plodded ahead their eyes on their task seeming to find in its fulfillment a partial escape from the intolerable oppression the women especially with their gift of living in the particular appeared hardly aware of the appalling development of the catastrophe And Campton felt himself almost as lonely among these people, who thought of nothing but the war, as among those who hardly thought of it at all. It was only when he and Boylston, after a hard morning's work, went out to lunch together, that what he called the Lusitania look, suddenly darkening the younger man's face, moved the painter with an anguish like his own boylston breaking through his habitual shyness had one day remonstrated with campton for not going on with his painting but the latter had merely rejoined we've each of us got to worry through this thing in our own way and the subject was not again raised between them the intervals between george's letters were growing longer campton who noted in his pocket diary the dates of all that he received as well as those addressed to mrs brant and miss anthony had not had one to record since the middle of June. And in that there was no allusion to the Lusitania. "'It's queer,' he said to Boylston one day, toward the end of July. "'I don't know yet what George thinks about the Lusitania.' "'Oh, yes, you do, sir,' Boylston returned, laughing. "'But all the mails from the war zone,' he added, "'have been very much delayed lately. "'When there's a big attack on anywhere, "'they hold up everything along the line. "'And besides, no end of letters are lost.' I suppose so, said Campton, pocketing the diary and trying for the millionth time to call up a vision of his boy seated at a desk in some still unvisualized place, his rumpled fair head bent above columns of figures or files of correspondence, while day after day the roof above him shook with the roar of the attacks which held up his letters. Chapter 23.